It is an interesting story with um, Delimar and uh, Rob. I don't know when we first started talking about this. It was back in October. Of last? Last okay. year, October of 2017. So we started talking about it, and then we had something eventually on the calendar, I think for last December. And um, then I was diagnosed with breast cancer in July. And so then we were waiting to find out how things were. We thought we caught it early. Well, had surgery, and it was in my lymph node. And so then I'm scheduled for chemo. Well, chemo's, it just shot that time frame. Um, We couldn't have the December thing. And then um, a week before I was supposed to start chemo, we found, um, had a CT scan, found a mass in my abdomen. So um, then I had to get transferred to a specialist. They had a better oncologist, did more um, refined testing. I didn't need chemo. There was no statistical benefit to chemo. So I actually could have come in December, but hey, oh well. Um, So then I had surgery on the second mass, which wasn't cancerous, but we didn't know that until after we Got it out. So then uh, Delamar and I, she wouldn't take no for an answer. I'm like, I'm going to have chemo. She's like, well, when will you be done with that? (laughs) (laughs) So then it was radiation. She made me count up, count up on my calendar. So I finished radiation on Friday. And we're like, I'm like, I got to get this radiation done. I cannot miss a day because I got to retreat this weekend. So anyway, it felt like my coming out party. And I just telling uh, Delamar as I, I flew away. Today it was like, so I have a good prognosis, but it's been an interesting six months and uh, interesting in in particular in uh, Delimar and Rob not giving up on me through that time. So I'm excited to be here. I know y'all have had um, a busy day, um, a busy Friday. You're probably going to have a very busy Monday. You might have a very busy Sunday. But I'm praying for us all that um, we can lean out of, you know how Jesus worded it, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, right? Because what do they do? They choke. They choke us from fruitfulness. And, and I'm, I'm hoping, even though it's short, that we can really retreat, that we can lean out of those things and lean into the word um, so that we can gain perspective and then because we've all got to go back to it, right? It's not going anywhere. Um, it's waiting there in the wings um, and we're all going to have a re-entry. You know, that's when you come out of a retreat and you had a really great time and Satan sees you. And he's like, oh, there she is. I'm going to get her good. Um, but the beauty of, of leaning out of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of, of riches that choke us is that it gives us a chance to have a perspective because we are going to go back, right back in it. But we have this phrase that we're going to be in the world, but not of it. And it kind of gives us a chance to like re-center, get a perspective. And we're going to be talking a lot about using Jesus and his kingdom as the lens through which we interpret scripture, but also the lens through which we interpret life. And so I hope that these 24 hours, even though they're short, They'll, they'll really be meaningful to you and equip you to re-enter in a way that's um, just life-giving. Um, so this set, uh, weekend, we're calling it Jesus for You, Clarity and Confidence as Daughters of God. 
I'll get to the Jesus part in a minute. But I picked this phrase clarity because um, we want us to walk out at the end of the weekend with a clear understanding of our place in the long story of Scripture. Um, We want to understand Scripture and not just understand Scripture, but understand our place in it. Um, And then so that we can have confidence as daughters of God, so that we can like really believe, understand and believe that we are equipped for that place in God's story. And um, we use this phrase, daughters of God. And I want to just acknowledge, in, in ministry to women, I've, I've found over and over and over again how often our baggage from our earthly fathers bleeds into how we receive that phrase, daughters of God. Um, I, I have a really uh, lovely dad. He's not perfect, but he's been very unconditional in his love toward me and through some pretty hard seasons in my life. He's been there for me, so I've never doubted God's provision. And um, But I've had a lot of friends who really struggled to understand the God of the Bible and really believe that he was for them because he, they had fathers maybe who shamed them or fathers who... Um, unjustly punish them, fathers who never believed the best of them, um, attributed to them um, things that weren't true about them, but also um, even fathers like who abandoned them and maybe not even um, abandoned them physically, but abandoned them emotionally. Like they couldn't handle your emotions. So um, if you had a father, maybe that um, when you were um, weak, you were emotionally needy. You could not go to them for grace and mercy in your time of need, right? And so then some of that gets projected onto God. Um, and we have to de- unlearn it, kind of slough off that baggage so that we can know the God of the Bible, right? Not, not you know, the dad from our earthly experience, but the father um, that the Bible describes because he's often very, very different. So as we use that language, daughters of God, let's lean out of our earthly baggage and into how the scripture defines our God. And we're going to talk about that. How does scripture define our father in heaven? Okay. Um, So uh, clarity and confidence as daughters of God in the long story of scripture. My burden is that a lot of women don't understand the long story of scripture. And I didn't. And that's why I'm assuming some others don't either because I didn't. But um, and and but when we don't understand the long story of Scripture, then we also often misinterpret or misunderstand the smaller subparts of Scripture as well. So I want us in this session to talk through the long story of Scripture, and then in the next two sessions we're going to talk about some of the the um, sub stories. But we're going to better understand those because of the long story. This is kind of a prerequisite for the other two at 10 at night. And so (laughs) we're going to work to be really exciting while we talk through this. But if you can make it through this one, I think it'll be really helpful for us tomorrow um, as we talk about these other things. Now, Jesus is our starting point. Jesus for women. Jesus for you. And the reason that um, I want to use this language is Jesus is the starting point. You know, Jesus is the end point of our faith too, right? 
But Jesus is also, for our discussion, the springboard for understanding the whole story of Scripture. And I don't know where each of you individually are in your faith, but um, I lived for 13 years in Seattle and had a lot of agnostic, atheistic friends. Um, But really interesting in our discussions, very rarely did they struggle with Jesus, especially if we talk about um, issues of gender or biological sex um, in scripture. So I wrote a book on, is the Bible good for women? Well, why a lot of Bible parts that people struggle with, right? Generally, they do not struggle with Jesus in the gospels. Even um, my agnostic or atheistic friends, when they look at Jesus in the gospels, they see someone who um, uh, stood up for the marginalized and the oppressed, that elevated women above their cultural status, that got in between accuser and accused. So I want to use him as our baseline, our starting point, as we talk about the long story of Scripture, particularly when it comes to womanhood, um, to our place as daughters of God and God's long story. Because generally, whatever your background or belief, we we tend to think of Jesus as being someone trustworthy with women in his story. Um, So we're going to use his teaching in the Gospels for as a springboard for understanding if we can trust the rest of scripture. Like I generally trust Jesus when it comes to um, women, womanhood, my, my femininity, um, up, uplifting women in their culture. But can I trust the rest of scripture? Um, and if we get it for the, uh, we can use Jesus as a springboard for understanding the rest of scripture. This first session is going to kind of be an overview of scripture that way. Then once we get that in our second session uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about some of the good storylines, like the ones if you're interested as a, um, if you ever hear talks on biblical womanhood, you know, the ones that people generally like because they resolve well and have uh, generally happy endings in their little parts, right? We like Ruth because she ends up with Boaz. Um, but, and so we'll talk about the ones that tend to be easier to process that end well, but then in our last session, we're going to talk about the ones that are, um, thank you. Um, we're going to talk about the ones that don't end well, the ones that we struggle more with from scripture. And if really, if you can get your place in those stories, or you can see their place in the larger story of Jesus, you can get it for any part of scripture. All right. So that's, um, where we're going this weekend. All right, and we're starting with what I call um, the scarlet thread through Scripture. And I think you got a lot of these um, verses in your notes for tonight. We're going to start on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and use this as our springboard for the rest of the weekend. Um, And it's really good to understand the setting here. So it's the road to Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has died and he has risen again, but he hasn't yet fully revealed himself to his disciples. So you have two of his disciples walking along the road and they're discussing all that happened. For these guys, likely Jesus's ministry, they thought he was the Messiah. These are Jewish believers. They thought he was the Messiah. They understood the scriptures that this is the one that was going to come to rescue them from Roman oppression. 
Um, They had seen him do miracles. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they had had an expectation of Jesus that he did not meet. Their expectation of Jesus was not that he would be crucified in this politically humiliating way. It's not just that he was killed, but he was killed in a deliberate way by the uh, Roman government to uh, specifically designed to demoralize political uprisings. So you hang up the leader. uh, It's a gruesome death. You know, people walk by him. And what does it do? It disperses an uprising. No one comes up after it to continue on with this political movement because the cost is so excruciatingly painful. And so their leader that they thought was the Messiah to free them from Roman oppression is just totally their their whole paradigm is 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 shattered okay so um as as the two taught jesus drew near and began walking to him they didn't recognize him um he asked what they were talking about and they explained what had happened over the last few days and jesus responded this is verses 25 through 27 oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Later, Jesus told them, these are my words. I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. All right, so let's pray real quick over this. Father, it's late and this is some meaty stuff. So really ask, Father, that you would give us clarity and understanding that you would open our eyes, too, to wonderful things in your word. That um, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and open, like Paul prays in Ephesians 1, to, to know the power at work for us and really understand the whole connected story of Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. All right, so in this moment on the road to Emmaus, Jesus decoded for those disciples large portions of the Old Testament that they had misunderstood or only kind of uh, understood in a very shallow way. I would love to have heard exactly what Jesus said. In fact, I've often thought the first scene when I get to heaven that I want to see, because I really believe that once we get to heaven, we can see, you know, that'll be played on the screen and Jesus plays Jesus and the disciples play the disciples. But um, I want to see this. I want to see exactly how he explained it. But I don't know exactly. However, I'm going to attempt to go through the themes that I think he addressed. And he tells us pretty specifically the law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, um, and explained all of the scripture to them. So I'm going to go through what we call the scarlet thread. Um, and this phrase, the scarlet thread, comes from uh, the Israelite spies' interactions with Rahab the harlot in Joshua 2. So Rahab is in Jericho, 
and they tell her to put a scarlet thread or cord, depending on your translation, in her doorway. And they would pass over her when they were destroying Jericho. And it's a clear allusion back to the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb is a clear allusion forward to Jesus death on the cross and and God passes his wrath passes over us because of the blood of the lamb. Um, and the phrase was popularized by a theologian named W.A. Criswell. And the and and the the scarlet thread follows the the poetic trickle of blood that really starts in Genesis and goes all the way through the Old Testament so that when Jesus did emerge on the scene um, you know, Philip and Nathaniel and um, uh, Anna and Simeon, they recognized him when he came. Um, so we're going to start in um, Genesis, Genesis 1. And remember, in the story that God wrote, God is both engineer and artist. God is both left-brained and right-brained. How many of you would identify as left brain? And I believe left brain is math and logic, more rational. Anybody? A few. Okay. Who would identify more as right brain, more artistic? Okay. God is both. Okay. He is engineer and he is artist. He created the world with um, great science and factual logic, logical systems. But he also wrote this beautiful poetic um, scriptures to us, and um, our understanding of scripture tends to be um, it, it goes along with how our brain functions. So, I love data points in scripture, and I see those as the structure of scripture, cross references. I call those data points when, like Paul and or the author of Hebrews will. Uh, quote Jeremiah, and you can connect those points and like, oh, okay, I get what they're talking about. Um, I've had friends, I talked about data points on Twitter once, and one lady just, it's not data, it's a story. I'm like, oh, okay, how about it's both, right? Um, so depending on what brain, you may identify more with God as artist and poet and author rather than God as science scientist and engineer, but really scripture kind of offers us both aspects to understand the whole story of it. All right, so he's engineer and artist, and his um, word reflects both of those to me. He opens the Bible in the classic form of the best of authors. All is well and beautiful in his um, new creation, but then right off the bat, the enemy of all enemies enters the scene and we have the fall of man and great sin right there in Genesis three fifteen, We have the first premonition of the coming Christ. It's called the proto evangelion. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, I will put enmity or warfare between you and the woman and between you and one born of the woman. You will chafe at his heels, Satan, but he will, he will give you a knockout blow to the head. The Proto-Evangelion is the first whisper of the coming Messiah. And then what does God do? 
he kills an animal. And it's the first shedding of blood in, in this creation. Then um, this poetic trickle of blood, the scarlet thread, starts in that moment. After God killed the animal to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, blood next flows in Genesis 4. As their son Cain killed Abel in a jealous rage because Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God. Um, Now, when I was learning this growing up in Sunday school, it never dawned on me. Nobody ever taught me that it might have anything to do with Jesus. But um, it's really interesting to read what um, Hebrews 11 gives us a data point to consider. Um, It says in Hebrews 11, 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel gives us, that story is an illusion. His story is, you know, designed to call something to mind without mentioning it explicitly. That's what an illusion is. And the Bible is full of illusions and metaphors to Jesus' coming. Hebrews 12, 24, though, teaches us something else about Abel's story. Um, It refers to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So whatever Abel's blood... Uh, communicated, Jesus's communicates something much better. Um, and so when we let these data points explain the Bible to us, we learn from Hebrews that those first moments of humanity were already giving us hints about what Jesus would come to do once and all for all on the cross, the righteous dying while the unrighteous receive mercy. All right. Then after giving us these small glimpses in the early parts of Genesis, um, we get to Abraham, um, Genesis 11 through 25. And Abraham isn't an allusion to what God is going to do through Jesus. Abraham is where God actually starts doing it. All right. It's uh, uh, Genesis 11 through 25. And here how the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 describes it. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So Paul is referring back to this particular interaction between God and Abraham in Genesis 12 through 17. It's very long, but I'm just going to read a few little parts of it. Um, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the, the good news that Paul is referring to. Uh, 15, 5 and 6, uh, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. All right, then 
God gave Abraham instructions to assemble um, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. There's a bunch of them. Uh, kill them and, and lay their parts out in a certain way. Their blood flows again here. It's a bloody covenant. Um, and then God causes Abraham to fall asleep. And God enters a covenant with him. And here's what God says to Abraham while he's asleep. There's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that go through this um, covenant while Abraham's asleep. And both of those are symbolic representations of God. So Abraham's a passive participant. God is the only active participant. God says, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay. So again, we see this bloody, this poetic trickle of blood um, through this covenant. And this um, ceremony probably feels very um, odd to us as 21st century uh, believers. It was actually not an um, unusual ceremony and still among some nomadic tribes in the Middle East. You might see something Similar to it where you're making a, you're sealing a covenant. Like if uh, two families decide that they're going to, their children are going to get married. They would have the ceremony to seal the covenant in between them. Um, Like, like, um, you know, we have, um, we have serious ceremonies to seal covenants still today. The swearing in of a judge um, or the uh, marriage covenants that we, we have are still, we, we understand ceremonies to seal and show the value of um, this commitment you're making to each other. But Abraham doesn't make the commitment. God does. And that's really this, the beautiful thing about this, this particular covenant. Though Abraham assembles the part, it only has this one active participant. And um, God took responsibility for both sides of the covenant. And the way Paul says it in 2 Timothy um, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So God makes this covenant with Abraham, symbolized with this bloody um, sacrifice. Um, now at this point in Genesis, God hadn't dumped onto Abraham a systematic theology Treatise, you know, really we know very little except that God is going to bless all nations through Abraham's descendants. We don't know what this is going to look like when it blooms. Then we get to Joseph. Um, you know, the story in Genesis slows down on Joseph, and I understand y'all are going through that in your Sunday sermon, so you don't need me to tell you all the details for it. In fact, I'm going to skip two paragraphs and we're going to bed early because I'm going to trust that you guys know this story. But Joseph recognized the profound meaning of his story um, in Genesis 50, 20. As, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So who's, who are the many people? Well, it's Abraham's descendants. They're not a nation yet. They're just a really big family at this point. But they're on the verge of being wiped out. And there would be no descendants of Abraham if God had not sent Joseph ahead. Um, and so and um, then the tiny family of Abraham is saved. They're preserved. And we actually see this scenario happen again and again throughout the Old Testament stories. 
many Old Testament stories just about preserving this family so that Abraham has seed. Um, there is seed in order for the Messiah to come through it and this promise be fulfilled. Fulfilled. So then at the end of the story, Joseph's story in Genesis 50, they're in Egypt. Um, and then Joseph dies, generations pass. And then we wake up in Exodus with um, a nation, their nation now. Generations have gone. The pharaohs don't, didn't know Joseph. The pharaohs don't like the fact that they're a nation. Um, and now they're slaves and they're oppressed. Um, at this point in God's story, the allusions to Jesus rise in volume as Moses, the deliverer, um, led God's children out of slavery in Egypt. And we get glimpses of what the final deliverance will look like through the Passover. Um, this, this bloody story of the first Passover where God saves from destruction all those who paint blood over their doorpost. Um, and then after they're delivered from Egypt, God um, told his people through Moses to sacrifice animals to atone for their sins. So we get the tabernacle system and um, you have the, the Ark of the Covenant the Holy of Holies and the Holy of Holies holds the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant is God's symbolic presence among his people. Well, how did they get access to the Holy of Holies? Well, they sacrifice blood and only the high priest can come in and the blood, the sacrifice has to be correct. And um, again, we have all of these allusions to Jesus as the high priest, not I would say they're more than illusions. They're actually detailed pictures that show us what he's going to come do. All right. So um, once the sacrificial laws are put into place in the temple, there's this clear, specific representation of what Jesus's coming sacrifice would look like. The shedding of blood of one without blemish and what it would accomplish. Atonement of sins that brings direct access to God. Okay. Then intertwine in the story of blood and sacrifice is the story of Jesus's lineage. These are another set of a really important parts of the old Testament. So remember that the Messiah is not going to be some random son of some random person. He's the seed of Abraham. And um, we meet Rahab and Ruth Boaz and Samuel, each of their stories feeds the next to the emergence of King David on the scene. And they're all intertwined. The one feeds the other. The story of Hannah in First and Second Samuel is important because Samuel's important. Why is Samuel important? Well, Samuel's important because he anoints King David. So all of the stories of who, how each one got their place in God's story is important because he's building, he's linking a story. These are not, I, I learned the scripture as um, a file cabinet of separate moral lessons. So, you know, we have the story of Joseph and what's it about? It's about run from rape, you know, or temptation, run from temptation and, um, you know, try to be faithful in persecution. Okay, and then you get to Ruth, and Ruth is like, be a godly woman, and 
you know, you, you divide up the stories and how to be like that character or why not to be like that character. That's not what they're about. They're a long story and each chapter feeds the next in the story so that when Jesus emerges on the scene, like Philip or, or it was um, Simeon and um, Zechariah and Anna, and they're like, oh my goodness, you, okay. Why? Because they understood the relationship chapter by chapter and they were ready for him to emerge on the scene. Um, so then David is the high point of the history of Israel. Each of their stories leads to the emergence of King David. And then um, the later historical stories of the Old Testament wind down to Israel becoming a marginalized nation, oppressed um, and slavery because of their sin and idolatry with this theme that they could never save themselves. They can't keep themselves righteous. They can't make themselves righteous and they can't keep themselves righteous. Then when the gospels open in Matthew one with the lineage of Jesus, we see why the stories of who beget whom matter, why Tamar and Ruth and Rahab's stories mattered. Because then Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. And they can trace it all the way back better than we can do on ancestry, right? Um, So in this weaving of the scarlet thread through scripture, the story of Jesus and the allusions to him and the building of the story through this poetic trickle of blood, there are several tools for understanding Old Testament stories that I find really helpful, particularly when we get to the hard ones. Um, first, the easiest category are those made up straightforward prophecies of the Messiah. Genesis 3.15 is a straightforward prophecy of the Messiah, the Proto-Evangelion. Isaiah 53 is a, a, a specific Um, prophecy. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Um, Then the second category are these stories that show God's work to preserve the lineage of Christ. Rahab's story in Joshua 2. The whole book of Ruth um, because you know Ruth is interesting until, you know, it's just like a little love story. You're like, oh, okay. She's like David's grandmother. Gotcha. Now I see why um, this is is so important. And and Rahab is is his great grandmother, or it might be great and great, great. But anyway, they're in the, in, in the grandmothers of David. Um, Esther is another one. Esther's story. It's about keeping the seed of Abraham alive, keeping the nation of Israel from being wiped out. Tamar and Ruth's story fall into this category as well. Tamar is this, you know, really rough story. And yet, if she hadn't done what she did, then, you know, this, this train would have um, fallen apart. Third category, pictures of the coming Christ, his work in his kingdom, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is a picture of the coming Christ. The story of Hosea and Gomer. So the whole book of Hosea is a picture of God's pursuit of his wayward bride. Ruth and um, the book of Ruth and Boaz as kinsman redeemer is a picture 
of the coming um, Christ and what he's going to do, redeem us from our, our sins. But the fourth category is a really, really important one. Many stories simply reinforce our need for a savior. Okay, They reinforce that Israel couldn't save themselves and neither can you or I. Okay, That Israel returned to idolatry again and again. Nowhere is it clearer than the book of Judges. Do you know what my favorite book in the Bible, Old Testament is? Joshua. Joshua is this really incredible book. All the promises of the land are fulfilled. Be strong and courageous and and God works in a mighty way. And you see things from 600 years before fulfilled in the book of uh, Joshua. And you know what? Judges opens the next chapter just one generation later. They're, They're terrible people. They're just horrible people. You know, one generation later and they've all turned to idolatry. You know, and but Judges uh, ends with this really interesting verse. It repeats it a couple times in it. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Gosh, this is about Jesus. This is about why we need King Jesus, why we need God's kingdom, why we pray your kingdom come. Because when we're left on our own with just judges, we are ridiculously inequipped. We go our own way. We do what's right in our own eyes, and it results in really horrible things. We need Jesus. So when you get these categories, um, you, I find personally these categories are really helpful for me as I get to different parts of Scripture that I don't know how they fit in together to point me to Jesus. But these categories, I think, are really helpful. And we're going to talk about, use these kind of in our next two sessions tomorrow um, to, to see Jesus in places that we don't normally see him in the Old Testament. Okay. So the scarlet thread began in Genesis with an allusion to Satan's defeat by one born of uh, woman. He had that first animal sacrifice. Then Abel's death um, communicates something to us about the righteous dying, but the unrighteous receiving mercy. And then we get to um, Abraham's story, and it really starts to take off. The Passover, we really get it. The um, Old Testament sacrificial system, suddenly you just got this really big representation of what Jesus is going to do. Um, And then with the bloody Passover and the institution of that Old Testament sacrificial system, the allusions to Jesus took off so that when Jesus held up the cup and proclaimed, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out. For many for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, The scarlet thread was complete. That was complete. You know, and then the, the allusions to future sacrifice in. Someone want to come in? Yeah. Someone's going to, she's going to. So um, in Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus dies on the cross, that's when the allusions to future sacrifice in. But, but, but what, what happens for us today? What are we still doing? I bet your church does it. You practice communion? The, blo- the, the poetic trickle of blood continues, right? The symbols um, 
representing, you know, the bread represents his body and the wine represents his blood. So that even today, what does it do? It speaks to us that even today, Jesus's blood accomplishes something for us in cleansing us from our sin. So, um, you know, you got the scarlet thread of blood sacrifice and the family thread of the sons of Abraham that point to this Savior um, as these major themes. And if you follow those threads, and I believe those are the threads and the themes that Jesus was pointing out on the road to Emmaus, much of the word of God through the Old Testament, particularly hard passages, become clearer. So that's the foundation we want to lay before tomorrow when we start looking at first the encouraging passages in the Old Testament involving women and then later at some disturbing ones. Jesus gives us the lens for understanding both sets. Okay. So let's close in prayer and try not to fall asleep as we pray. (laughs) And then we'll um, get back to work tomorrow. Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes to, um, you would enlighten us to wonderful things in your word and then how, how it matters, why it matters to us as we re-engage in our real life issues, our real life struggles. Um, and I pray for good rest tonight and for true retreat and refreshment um, so that we can re-engage um, when we get back home and, and rejuvenated and refreshed, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.